Professor Alan Dershowitz, lawyer, Zionist, legend. If the world would only leave Israel alone, uh, it could do so much to help in science and technology. No country in the history of the world has contributed more to humankind in a short period of time since 1948 than the state of Israel. Every Israeli should be so proud of the contributions they've made while surrounded on all sides and within by enemies. And no country today in the world faced with threats comparable to those faced by Israel has a better record of human rights, a better record of compliance with the rule of law, and a better record for uh, helping to protect civilians against collateral uh, damage. Shame on Amnesty International for calling Israel an apartheid and genocidal state. He talks to everyone about the state of Israel. Nobody can predict the mega issues surrounding Israel. Will Iran develop a nuclear weapon? Will Israel have to uh, engage in a preemptive attack on the Iranian nuclear reactor? None of us knows the answer uh, to that question. I've discussed it with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I've discussed it with many, many uh, Jewish leaders over the years. Uh, uh, I discussed it with Begin. I discussed it with Rabin. And shall we talk about the BBC? I think so. Maybe they should have announced in the beginning that I was somebody who was accused. I said it myself. I'm not ashamed of it because I was uh, falsely accused by a woman with a long history of making up stories about prominent people. Plus why the Rambam is niched for him and how Jewish leadership can seem like the enemy from within. Stay tuned for a vibrant conversation with Professor Alan Dershowitz. Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Professor Alan Dershowitz, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I've heard great things about your show and about you. Well, that's really exciting. I'm blown away by that. Can I talk to you first of all? Let's cut straight to the chase. Your comments about Israeliophobia. It's a very difficult word to say because I don't think I've ever said that word before. Israeliophobia and the West, the hijacking of civil discourse on Israel and how to rescue it. It is something that we work all of us so very hard, so very tirelessly to deal with. The, the lies, the slurs, the idea of apartheid in Israel. Where do we start on such a big subject? Well, we start on the, uh, on the Jews, uh, the Jewish community, the Jewish leadership, which is grievously at fault, um, and the Jewish media. If you want to read the most anti-Israel newspaper in the world, you don't go to Al Jazeera. Uh, you go to uh, Haaretz. Uh, you read only negative things about Israel. If you want to hear negative things about Israel, you don't go to anti-Israel groups that consist of Arabs and Muslims, you go to J Street. Um, if you want to make sure that Alan Dershowitz can't be heard and his case for Israel can't be made, you go to Temple Emanuel in New York, who canceled Alan Dershowitz and said he can never speak there, or the 92nd Street Y. Um, there used to be a cartoon character in the United States who was very popular, his name was Pogo. And one day he said, we have seen the enemy and he is us. And so it has to start with the Jewish community. The Jewish community is grievously, grievously at fault. The leadership of the Jewish community, the reform movement uh, in general, not all of it, but in general, uh, uh, the uh, academics, Jewish academics, um, um, 
Jewish studies programs at universities are among the most anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish and anti-Israel groups. So we have to look inward and we have to focus on the Jewish leadership, which has failed us miserably. The Jewish leadership has a horrible record over time. It failed us in the Second World War. Uh, it follows the crowd, it follows the money, it follows the wealth. It allows the big machas to make decisions instead of the people to make decisions. It has no trust in the average uh, Jewish person to uh, understand their own uh, uh, needs and the needs of uh, Israel. Shame on the leadership of the Jewish community. With exceptions, obviously, with exceptions. Of course, the progressive movement. And I have had this conversation with a number of people from very diverse parts of the Jewish community, because I, I do draw a line on this podcast. I don't want anti-Zionists. I'm a bit met on non-Zionists, because I sometimes feel that people who are non-Zionists are kind of living in the past, given that Israel is the driver of Jewish culture in the 21st century. But I've had conversations with Chen Mazik, who had a sort of inquisition against Ariel Gold. But there are hard left, I think that's the word, Jews in Israel who want to disband the country for a majority Arab state with all the civil war and a tiny a minority, piece. a very yeah. tiny minority. But I mean, they would have served in the army, right? They would have been, you know, they're taxpayers in Israel. Exactly. You know, they speak Ivrit and they are Jews. How, how, where do they, how do they, how do they live? You know, how, how does that work? How do you deny who you are like that? I guess that you're uh, so distant and so uh, um, distant from, from the day-to-day -day reality and you don't have the, you know, that you have the luxury of, of being protected and shielding your own community that is sitting in uh, in salons and speaking about, you know, in cocktail parties about how uh, amazing it will be if Israel was part of Europe and how we, you know, we wish that Israel was just something else, not, not this Middle Eastern country with a Middle Eastern soul. Unfortunately, it is a Middle Eastern country. We are Middle Eastern people. We always have been. And this, and, and even our discussion about this Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, this is diaspora, diaspora identities. It's it's very foreign to what we really are as Jews. We're all Jews. We all came from Judea. That's, that's where Jews come from. Yeah. I've talked to the mighty Tuvia Tenenbaum, who exposed anti-Semitism in the UK in a way that perhaps... Great book. Great book. I love that. Book. What yeah, a great yeah. book. It's not just a take on Shakespeare. It's, it's the taming of the Jew. I mean, the Jews that I found in in Great Britain are amazing to me as they either deny or tolerate and sometimes join together forces with their accusers, with their haters. That was shocking. And even, you know, in this country, we've seen JVL. I was at the uh, a number of protests where Jewish people turn up and, and I am racking my brain. I ask you, just as I ask Ken Mazik, uh, a wise young man, you know, why would you shoot yourself in the foot? Why would you be like that? Are you projecting your hatred on someone in your own family? What is it? I think it's selfishness. I think it's just selfishness. I think that um, young Jews think they have a better chance of having sex if they're anti-Israel than if they're pro-Israel. Uh, I've been told that on college campuses. Uh, they think they're going to be more popular they think they'll be have a better chance to uh, uh, make more money. Uh, it's all selfish. Um, I think many Jews hold their finger to the wind and say, which way is the wind blowing? 1967, they were all pro-Israel. 
Um, uh, but when uh, the academy turned against Israel, when much of the media turned against Israel, they went along with it. Look, Jews are no better than anybody else. There are lots of rotten Jews around, uh, including many who rise to leadership positions. And uh, we have to call it and we have to expose them and we have to make sure they don't speak for us. You know, there's this whole thing of ethnic identity. You get a guy like uh, Gilad Atzmon, who is a Holocaust denier, a vicious, vicious anti-Semite. But people say, they make the case for ethnic identification. They say, if a Jew, if a Jew like Atzmon, like Finkelstein, like uh, Chomsky, like uh, Beinart, uh, like J Street, if they're so much against Israel, it must be true because it, 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 it comes from a Jew himself. I went back to the election here in 2019, which uh, was a severe struggle for the British Jewish community and Jeremy Corbyn and Lord Alf Dubbs, himself a kinder transport success story, if you like, someone who arrived here as a bohemian Jewish boy and who raised himself to the House of Lords, became a Corbyn flag waver. And we see some of the Orthodox Jews who acted as a sort of Praetorian guard for Corbyn and you know shame on them and we go back not that far in our history to the middle of the last century with the bundists against the zionists um and perhaps even further back to the first diaspora the alexandrians of egypt and the pharisees and the seduces and we talk about some of the less than brave jews who became new christians but of course as usual whenever we try to pacify uh, that sort of fascism if you like it never, ever works out for us. Um, the great thing that we have as Jews as an advantage perhaps over many other people is being able to connect with our history because these things keep on repeating. Except the one exception, some people who abandoned the Jewish community did thrive and did benefit. Um, um, during the Second World War, uh, there were people uh, who collaborated with uh, the Germans, Gertrude Stein. She lived through the Second World War as a Nazi collaborator. Her best friend was the head of the Gestapo in the part of France that she was living openly um, and, and even possibly disclosing the, the location of, of, of uh, hideouts where Jewish children were hiding. She was Jewish, uh, but there wasn't an ounce of Judaism in her. Uh, she proposed Hitler for a Nobel Peace Prize and wrote the preface to books written by people in the Vichy regime. Uh, so, you know, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're not uh, somebody who deserves uh, incredible criticism. And so some Jews did get away with it. Um, many Jews collaborated in an effort to get away with it, and they didn't because Hitler didn't distinguish among uh, good Jews and bad Jews. If you had Jewish blood, you were, you were bad. Uh, so we do have a long history uh, here. Of course, uh, we have a history of collaboration against the establishment of the State of Israel by many in the Reform Movement um, uh, in, in the United States, the Reform Jewish Movement, the American Council on Judaism, uh, the New York Times, New York Times, which has had a sordid history when it comes to Jews, it didn't report on the Holocaust, it reported negatively on uh, Israel, it supported Stalin. Um, uh, why people think the New York Times is the newspaper of record, I'll never understand. They make mistake after mistake. 
And it's always a mistake that's anti-Israel or anti-conservative. Look, I'm a liberal Democrat. Um, I would have had a real, I, I wouldn't have had a real problem in England, actually, because although I'm a liberal Democrat, if I were living in England, I'd be a conservative. Because remember, the Conservative Party in England supports gay rights, supports a woman's right to choose abortion, opposes capital punishment, supports reasonable gun control, supports separation of church and state. In the United States, it doesn't. In the United States, we have a bigger problem because I can't be a conservative in the United States. I can't be a Republican. I can't support denying gay people the right to marry and deny uh, women the right to choose. I can't do that. In England, uh, Jews have a good choice. And uh, uh, I would be a conservative in England. Certainly, I could never support um, uh, some of the candidates from the Labour Party. But remember, Bernie Sanders, the highest ranking Jew and probably in the Senate, uh, came over and campaigned for the bigot that ran for the Labour Party in, in, in Great Britain. So, you know, we're a strange people. We are a strange people. And we include lots of good people, lots and lots of good people and lots and lots of very bad people. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel. Um, for instance, there is a in most European countries, there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist. And often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. You're a good person and also a champion of the underdog. Perhaps that was uh, born within us. We believe we're the underdogs and uh, we always prosper when we're left alone to build our dreams wherever we are, whether we're in exile or whether we're in uh, Eretz Yisrael. And, and you are known for taking on high profile and often unpopular causes and clients. Um, as of 2009, you won 13 out of 15 murder and attempted murder cases. Yeah, I've done better since, actually. Uh, but, um, you know, it's part of the Jewish tradition. Um, for me, um, the two most important things in the Torah are Avraham arguing with God. How dare you, God, 
not do justice to the people of Saddam. And then my own bar mitzvah sedra, shoftim, where it has two admonitions to judges. Don't take a bribe. That's easy. But that comes second. The first is lo takir panim. Do not recognize faces. Do not recognize races. Do not recognize genders. Wear a blindfold. That's what the Statue of Justice is all about. And today, justice has ceased to exist. It's all racial justice, gender justice, progressive justice, justice for me, but not for thee. And I'm very much a student of the Torah, and I try very hard to follow uh, its, its commandments. I admit I don't follow all of them. I, I do occasionally wear shotness, uh, and, and I don't uh, wear a yarmulke. Um, but I follow the most important ethical of, of the Torah, and I take very seriously the lessons to be learned. I've written two books on the Torah, one, The Genesis of Justice, and the other, a book about Abraham, the world's first, but certainly not last lawyer. And now I, I have a talk show called The Durst Show. The only thing that's missing is the wits, and that's provided by my audience. And I talk a lot about uh, Israel, a lot about free speech, a lot about the causes and issues that we're talking about today. Because this is uh, something of your background. You come from an orthodox background, don't you? Uh, I do. Modern orthodox. I went to yeshiva elementary school, yeshiva high school, and I didn't get into yeshiva college. I was turned down from yeshiva university uh, because I was a bandit in high school and not a very good student. And I finished first in my class, both at Brooklyn College and at Yale Law School. So I needed to get out of the yeshiva environment to thrive. Uh, and, uh, but I, I learned a lot uh, in yeshiva, and I learned a lot on my own in, in reading uh, the Torah, and uh, I still read the Torah all the time. And tell me, is that because of your childhood education, or do you think actually that being a secular lawyer, if you like, of, of U.S. law has kept you on the legal straight and narrow to continue studying Torah? In other words, is Torah and American law, the Magna Carta, the principles that we have, kind of keeping you on a sort of straight and narrow as a good Jew as you grow older? I would say exactly the opposite. It's the thing that I love about the Torah and I love about the Talmud and I love about the Mishnah are not the answers, but the questions. Uh, Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winner, once said he'd rather live in a country in which the questions have no answers than a country in which the answers can't be questioned. And for me, the Talmud and the Torah is full of questions. When I taught criminal law at Harvard for 50 years, I never came across a legal or ethical issue that wasn't debated in a Jewish source. Now, I didn't always agree with the answer, but I used Jewish sources all the time to teach my students. I didn't have to do hypotheticals. I could say there was a case, there was a story in the Talmud where a town was surrounded and uh, the decision had to be made to turn over one person to kill or to kill all the people in the town. You know, we now teach what's called the trolley example in many academic places. You're, you're, you're in a trolley, you're the conductor, and if you go straight ahead, you kill five people, but if you turn to the left, you'll kill one person on the track. Are you allowed to make that turn to kill that one person deliberately? You know, that's just a variation of, uh, of a theme that runs through Jewish sources in the Talmud. And tragically, it's a variation of a theme that Jews had to experience all the time, all through our history. 
we were given the choice, turn over one or we'll kill all. And um, every issue that I taught, murder, attempted murder, larceny, uh, extortion, it's all there. Uh, you don't have to accept the answers. And what's the best proof of that? The Jewish community didn't always accept the answers. Um, it always preserved dissenting opinions. The Jewish religion is the first religion ever not to burn dissenters, but instead to honor them and preserve their dissenting opinions. Because who knows, someday the dissenting opinion may become the majority opinion. So for me, it wasn't the answers. It wasn't what uh, necessarily the halacha is. In fact, I don't like the word halacha because the word halacha is in the singular, one road. Uh, it should be, my Hebrew isn't good enough to know whether it's halachot or halachim, halachot, I suspect, but it should be multiple roads. Uh, there are multiple roads uh, by which you can follow Jewish tradition. And uh, I don't listen to the answers of the rabbis. I guess maybe it's part of my heritage. I grew up with a grandfather who was a very great Talmud Chacham, but he was not a rabbi. And uh, he would always question the rabbis. Who gives the rabbis the authority? My, my grandfather would tell me and my other relatives would tell me, in Judaism, you can perform every single mitzvah without a rabbi. You can get married without a rabbi. You can get buried without a rabbi. You can get bar mitzvah without a rabbi. Uh, rabbis are great, but they don't have all the answers. And uh, Judaism is a dialogic religion. It, it, it in, involves never having final answers to ultimate uh, issues. You know, it's been 4,000 years since Judaism uh, began. We still don't know whether there's life after death. Um, you know, <laughs> there's still great, great uh, debate. Uh, you know, life after death isn't in the Torah, but, you know, there are some rabbis who think there are six hints that there's life after death. And, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest failure, the most brilliant failure in Jewish history is the Rambam, Maimonides, because he thought you could create a catechism for Judaism. I believe with all my heart. Most Jews don't believe in the 13 uh, attributes that uh, Maimonides insists on. It says if you believe in, in 12, but not 13, you're a weed and you should be thrown away. Uh, Maimonides didn't believe in the Talmud. He didn't believe in dialogue and debate. He was much more somebody who thought that he could do the Mishnah Torah and, and, and write the answers to all the questions. That's why I'm not a great fan of the Rambam. I'm a much bigger fan of many of the other um, uh, 14th, 15th, 16th century uh, Jewish intellectuals who asked better questions. Again, Richard Feynman, when he came home from school as an elementary student, his mother wouldn't say, did you give a good answer in school today? She would say, did you ask a good question? And for me, the Rambam doesn't ask good questions. He provides answers, but many of the other great Jewish intellectuals uh, wrote the great questions that we're still trying to answer. Life will never answer the questions. We'll, we'll all die with questions unanswered. And I guess the idea of rather than handing down edicts like the Rambam and keeping your mind open is that the world continues to evolve. The profundity of the Torah is that it can give an answer in the 15th century that perhaps might manifest itself very differently in the 21st century. As you were talking about life after death, 
I was thinking to myself that maybe in the 20th century, there became an answer to that, which was the world of cine, of video. Michael Jackson is long gone, but his amazing moonwalking continues to thrill uh, people who were born after his death. Wouldn't surprise me if we could someday download the brains of people and keep the information. They, a very close friend of mine named Robert Nozick, who was a great philosopher, uh, died several years ago. And on his deathbed, I visited him. And he said his greatest regret is that he's dying with so much information and so many ideas in his head. And he doesn't have enough time to write them down. And they'll never be communicated. And he wished for, he said, if you could put my brain in a jar and have it just communicate my ideas, uh, he said, I would be, I would be uh, uh, very, very happy. Um, and the other thing about Jews is everything is subject to humor. I mean, Jewish humor is unbelievable. Uh, and, and, and you can't understand uh, being a Jew and humor is part of questioning is part of questioning everything. I use a story from uh, a great Hasidic rabbi in court all the time. So they asked this great Hasidic rabbi who had never said anything negative about anybody or anything. They challenged the students and they said, say something positive about being an atheist. He said, at some points in your life, you should be an atheist. When you see a hungry person on the street, don't ever say God will save him. Act as if there is no God and you're the only person who can save him. I mean, these kinds of stories are amazing. And, and, and Jews joke about them themselves. I was with a group of Hasidim the other day. I'm representing a man who was, is a Hasid who was being charged, believe it or not, with murder. And he's innocent. And so I'm dealing with this group of Hasidim. And they're arguing back and forth. And, and I said, you know, different Hasidim have different approaches to different problems. And I told him the joke about the rich Jewish guy in Palm Beach whose golf game was terrible. So he went to the Bubba Varebi and the Bubba Varebi said, oh, let me check the Mishnah. And uh, yeah, here's how he stand and the holes in the ground. And sure enough, the guy's golf game was amazing. And his friend came to him and said, you know, my tennis game is terrible. Uh, I'm going to go to the Bubba. And the Bubba gave him instructions on his tennis game and his tennis game got worse. And he said to his friend, friend, but I went to the rabbi and my tennis game got worse. And he said, what are you stupid? The bubba is for golf. It's the Chabad that's for tennis. <laughs> he went to the wrong cousin. We have a joke for everything. I shall bear that in mind next time I go onto a golf course. Um, now, of course, this interview has continued in a way that you would never hear on the BBC. I can't get on the BBC. And I disclosed the fact that the same woman who accused Prince Andrew has falsely accused me and I've disproved the allegations against me. Our own lawyer admitted it was false and they withdrew it. But nonetheless, uh, BBC was criticized and they said they should never have interviewed me. So I'm now I'm now canceled by BBC, but I'm still on a number of British television stations. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that. And, and what I what I kind of want to ask you here, Alan, is that because of this constant echo chamber of statement that you weren't an appropriate interviewee for this is casting an aspersion on your good name even if you don't understand the ins and outs of what the bbc were talking about this reached millions of people and i was annoyed on your behalf that your yeah. good name your good reputation was soiled in a really quite inappropriate and clumsy manner and i kind of part of today is to give you the platform 
to refute that and to give them a rollicking because it's just unacceptable that, you know, because they didn't explain why exactly you were inappropriate. Uh, it was after the Ghislaine Maxwell conviction and the important thing in England was what impact this would have on Prince Andrew. And I was the perfect person to be interviewed because I disclosed, obviously, right up front that I was being accused as well. But the point I made is that the government didn't use the accuser, my accuser or Prince Andrew's accuser, didn't use her as a witness because they didn't believe her. Uh, they didn't believe her, but they believed the woman, a woman named uh, Carolyn Andrea, uh, who said she was trafficked by Ghislaine Maxwell. I had that information. I wasn't speaking as an expert. They didn't introduce me as an expert. I was somebody who knew something about the case. They've also interviewed many of Gouffre's lawyers. They've, they would be happy to interview Gouffre. Uh, why one-sided? Why can't both sides of an issue be presented? I've actually consulted an attorney in London to see whether or not uh, the BBC violated my, my rights, but I will not be silenced if the BBC doesn't want me. There are other platforms in which my views can be expressed. I agree with you. I think the BBC, maybe they should have announced in the beginning that I was somebody who was accused. I said it myself. I'm not ashamed of it because I was uh, falsely accused by a woman with a long history of making up stories about prominent people. And so I fully disclosed uh, my, my involvement in the case. And I was a perfect person for BBC to interview. But because some member of parliament said, we shouldn't interview people on that side. You don't interview people who are criticizing victims. You only interview the victims. That's not journalism. That's yeah. advocacy. Which goes back to my first question about the stymieing of free speech, the idea that only one side should be heard, even by people in government or around government in, in parliaments, and those people should be silenced. This idea that people are being conditioned, people who were born into adulthood in this crazy time are beginning to react in this way. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think free speech for me, but not for thee, has become prominent. And for the first time in my life, academics are now saying free speech is paternalistic, colonialist, white privilege, dominant. We don't need free speech. Uh, only, only good people, only progressives should be allowed to speak, not people who would uh, take a different position. Uh, but uh, that argument is it's winning on college campuses, but it's losing in the marketplace of ideas in general. I think people don't want to see free speech suppressed. Finally, in this gripping conversation, sir, are you optimistic about the United States? And are you optimistic about the state of Israel? Are they two different answers? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish answer to that is the, the, the guy in, uh, in Israel uh, who says that uh, in Israel, a pessimist is somebody who says, oi, they, things are so bad, they can't get worse. An optimist says, yes, they can. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think things could get worse. They are getting worse in Ukraine. Um, uh, I think they are getting worse on college campuses in relation to Israel. And a lot of the fault of that is in the Jewish leadership. I think we need a massive change in Jewish leadership. And the way Jewish leaders are appointed, elected, uh, uh, bribe their way into leadership positions by making large contributions. 
uh, I think we need a massive change. And the, the leadership of the Jewish community, particularly of the reform uh, Jewish community, which is one of the largest, is, is deeply, deeply uh, lacking in, in Jewish knowledge, in Jewish values. Baroness Ruth Deitch. The trouble with Jewish leadership in this country, and I go back hundreds of years in this respect, is it has always been the province of self-appointed, extremely wealthy men. They are philanthropic. Our community couldn't do without them. But they have arrogated to themselves at the same time leadership, self-appointedly. Many of our so-called leaders today are people who gave money and therefore believe it's their right to be our leaders. And I don't think we have representative leadership. A few women are coming forward now, but it's still very much the province of the self-appointed wealthy. I think, although I'm not an Orthodox Jew, I think the Orthodox Jewish leadership is much, much, much more effective and much more committed to uh, Israel. And um, um, so I have a combination of optimism and pessimism. I think, uh, I think that things will get better on the free speech level, on defending Israel, uh, on campuses. It will get better. But nobody can predict the mega issues surrounding Israel. Will Iran develop a nuclear weapon? Will Israel have to uh, engage in a preemptive attack on the Iranian nuclear reactor? None of us knows the answer uh, to that question. I've discussed it with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I've discussed it with many, many uh, Jewish leaders over the years. Uh, uh, I discussed it with Begin. I discussed it with Rabin. Um, you know, I've had very close connections to Jewish uh, Israeli leaders over the years. Um, and uh, if the world would only leave Israel alone, uh, it could do so much to help in science and technology. No country in the history of the world has contributed more to humankind in a short period of time since 1948 than the state of Israel. Every Israeli should be so proud of the contributions they've made while surrounded on all sides and within by enemies, and no country today in the world faced with threats comparable to those faced by Israel has a better record of human rights, a better record of compliance with the rule of law, and a better record for uh, helping to protect civilians against collateral uh, damage. Shame on Amnesty International for calling Israel an apartheid and genocidal state. Shame on Black Lives Matter as an organization, not as a concept, as an organization for uh, calling Israel an apartheid and genocidal state. And shame on J Street and Haaretz for only seeing the negatives uh, of Israel and not focusing enough on the positives. Kol HaKavod, what a fantastic way to uh, end this uh, conversation. Uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz, I do hope that this is uh, the first of many times that we're able to talk and that you can grant me more time in the future. I would enjoy that very much. Send me this interview so I can circulate it to my few remaining friends. <laughs> You'll have more friends after this, I can assure you. Professor Dershowitz, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. That was amazing. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.